Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. Well, we're in Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which runs until March 6th, and we are turning to Lighthouse Arabia, Dubai's Community Health and Wellness Center, and Dr. Tazim Danji, consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist, who is a lead on the ED service for some expert guidance. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we're entering a big week for eating disorders. Can you tell me what's going on and where we sort of sit here in the UAE and globally? Okay, so um, maybe I'll just start by setting the scene and just giving a few general facts, um, and then we'll talk about Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Um, so eating disorders affect around 9% of the population world, worldwide, and so those are statistics from the National Association of Anorexia and Associated Disorders. Um, what that means is that actually it's something that we all need to be aware of and we all need to be thinking about in terms of here in the UAE, but also uh, globally, um, particularly given some of the um, changes that have happened and the increase in incidents that we've seen through the COVID pandemic. Um, so we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, it's also one of the psychiatric disorders that holds the highest mortality. Um, and so that's really important, especially in Eating Disorders Awareness Week to be, to be really thinking about this as, um, as a mental health illness. Um, you know, lots of people have looked at eating disorders and taken the approach of, you know, you can just eat more or you should be able to control your eating and not really um, recognizing the psychological impacts that eating disorders have. Um, there have been some studies um, in the UAE. So there was one of university students in Abu Dhabi um, and that had showed that 24% of those that were questioned um, had um, reached a cutoff in terms of disordered eating attitudes um, and 75% almost were dissatisfied by body image. So we all have body image issues. Uh, you know, that's something that we can't hide away from. There's a lot of um, messages that come through social media um, and things like that. And um, so it's important that we're trying to think about how do those body image issues affect our day-to-day -day life um, and are they actually affecting the way that we function, the way we behave in terms of eating, exercise, um, and, and that, you know, um, other sort of behaviours that we might adopt. Um, so I guess thinking about Eating Disorders Awareness Week and thinking about um, the particular things that are important at the moment. So I mentioned COVID-19. Um, the other thing in uh, particularly the UAE is bariatric surgery. Mm. Um, so I'll go on to talk about those two yes. things because I think that's quite important. Okay. Um, so COVID-19, I mean, you know, lots of us were thrown into uh, chaos. Everything changed around us. There was a lot of um, uh, changes in terms of things like homeschooling or people working from home, um, changes to routine and structure. 
that's created a lot of anxiety in people. Um, and a way that people tend to control anxiety could be by controlling their eating. Um, it might feel that that's the only thing that people feel able to control uh, when other things around them seem to be in chaos. Um, so there has been an increased incidence of um, people both in outpatients and inpatients uh, during COVID-19 um, with eating disorders. And there's also been, um, so if we think about staying at home, watching ourselves on the screen during homeschooling or during Zoom meetings uh, for work, uh, there's an overemphasis on, um, you know, how, how do we look? What's our appearance like? Um, comparisons, um, those types of things. And so it's actually added to a lot of issues that people may have had even from the start. Um, and, and so as a result of that, I think COVID-19 and um, the, the effect that that's had um, on people's loss of uh, routine, not being able to do outdoor activities, um, spending more time on social media um, has, has led to an increase in eating disorders. So what uh, the second? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh. No, go ahead. I'll I'll ask. Um, okay. Uh, so then the, the second thing is uh, that I mentioned was bariatric surgery. So you know, there's such wide access to bariatric surgery, especially in this region, um, and often um, people who may have a poor relationship with uh, food may uh, use food as a sort of a way to cope with emotions if they've had pre-existing body image issues, um, that can be really difficult because actually they might not understand the long-term impact of having something like bariatric surgery um, and the changes that might happen both psychologically, uh, but physically. Um, so, you know, we've seen lots and lots of patients that would come to us after maybe two or three different types of weight loss surgeries. Um, and they, they still have some of the, the behaviors that they had when they uh, started their binge eating, for instance. Um, and so there's a real, um, there needs to be a lot of awareness in terms of um, trying to think about, well, what is the mental health component of these things and how is that being addressed before um, going into some type of weight loss um, surgery or intervention? Um, okay. So I think those two are the main main things that we're seeing. Okay, so just let's go here back. And, sorry? Just here and globally. Here and globally. Okay. So let's just go back to the beginning a little bit. When, when does it cross over from, you know, what's the range from worrying about the way you look to being very vigilant, you know, and disciplined into a problematic situation? Is it always anxiety that pushes you over that edge? Uh, so often we'll see that people who do develop eating disorders are people who may have had some pre-existing uh, difficulties. So that would be possibly anxiety. It may be low self-esteem. Um, there's lots of risk factors for developing an eating disorder. Uh, genetics, um, personality issues. So it might be that somebody is quite perfectionist in their personality or has quite a rigid thinking style. Um, maybe they're more susceptible to social media images and, and things like that. Um, so it may be that there's an addition of the risk factors, um, but it's also, uh, it's probably considered to go from disordered eating to an eating disorder when it starts to affect uh, your functioning, when it's starting to affect your mental health, that people become so preoccupied that actually they can't 
function as they normally would in the day uh, without thinking about the effect that it's having on their body shape, their eating. Um, you know, uh, often people will come to us and say that all they're thinking about is the next meal and how they're going to compensate for, for the meal that they've just had. Um, so when those thoughts become preoccupying and it's really stopping you from being able to function, um, that that's a, a good indicator that actually um, some support is needed and that early intervention um, can actually, especially when you're in that disordered eating stage. So we might also see people who are on the verge of um, developing an eating disorder, but actually if you see them early enough and you're able to give them the support that they need, it might be that they don't actually um, go on to develop an eating disorder. Because there's so many messages of what, what is healthy. Yeah. Um, people have such a different image of what healthy is. So a lot of people think that healthy is being on a diet or restricting. Uh, whereas that's not the case. Health to me means um, having good physical and psychological health. And that's a balance. Um, you, you know, having a balanced meal does include carbohydrates and fats. It does include protein and, you know, fruit and veg. Um, it doesn't include skipping uh, meals or, you know, cutting out all fats and carbohydrates. That, that to me is not health. So, um, when it comes to young girls, which is where a lot and, and boys, because it is a problem for boys as well, but, um, parents always, you know, I had a, a friend who was struggling with this, with her daughter who was exercising immensely at 11 and was watching her eating. And, uh, she just, what do I do? Like, what do I do? People don't know what to do. And when you go search, you don't know what to do. What would you advise parents who are starting to see that in their kids to do? Um, so my biggest advice is um, to seek early support. Um, and so what you want to first of all do is have a conversation with, with the child. Um, you want it to be a very compassionate and empathic conversation, because I think if you come from an accusatory tone, like, you know, I noticed that you skipped breakfast, I noticed that you're doing this, um, that's never received well, particularly if it is a disorder that that person is developing or has developed. Um, so coming from a place of compassion and trying to understand, maybe saying, um, I've noticed that this happened. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about this? Um, so having a very uh, sort of soft approach to, to approaching the young person initially, um, getting some more information from school, you know, what's happening when the young person is at school, um how how trying to make an assessment of how they are physically are they um having any noticing any changes like hair loss or um feeling dizzy when they're waking up um those kinds of things and then and then getting some early intervention so going to a gps or contacting some specialist services um so at uh the lighthouse arabia we have um a multidisciplinary team which includes psychiatry psychology and uh, dietetics um, and, and so just even if it is just for the parents to initially come and have a conversation and say, this is what we're noticing, um, you know, how, how, what do we need to do? How do we approach it? Uh, there's lots of, uh, support groups that, that we're going to, um, be launching particularly for parents and carers. Um, so that, that will be something that will, um, eventually run monthly. Um, and that will be free of charge. So that's, you know, an important place to try and get some information. Um, and in Eating Disorders Awareness Week, you know, there's lots of things that we're going to be putting out in terms of how do parents 
manage that conversation? What are the tips in terms of support? Um, you, men- you mentioned boys. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to know that actually um, with boys, um, although pre-puberty, the ratios are quite even, uh, post-puberty, the ratio in terms of eating disorders, male to female is about one in uh, one to 10. Um, so part of that is under-reporting. I think generally, uh, males find it difficult to go to their general practitioner for any disorder, let alone an eating disorder. Um, and, you know, particularly if eating disorders are seen as a sort of female disorder, um, it's even more difficult for, for males to come. And so when we do see um, young boys and, and, and men come to the service, it's often at a time where actually it's been going on for a long time. They've been struggling for many, many years. Um, and that's when the severity is higher, the mortality and the morbidity is higher um, in terms of what's going on. Um, and so, again, you know, early intervention gives you better prognosis. So I think it's really important that even for men, that actually there's a recognition that men suffer from, from eating disorders too, um, and that they need to, to get support early. Okay. Um, I think it's around sort of like 15% um, suffer from an eating disorder in comparison to, to um, females, the, the overall eating disorder. You mentioned COVID-19, and I've also read that um, women in their 40s who are going through a perimenopause are also vulnerable to develop eating disorders, and people in, in COVID-19 may have developed them um, it sort of seems to be a reaction to outside anxiety, something that you can control. Can you just sort of, can that develop if you didn't have prior inklings or indications? Yeah, so eating disorders doesn't, they don't unfortunately sort of discriminate. So it can happen in anyone of any gender, of any age, um, any ethnicity um, or, um, you know, and and so what that means is that, you, you do get these situations where actually somebody may have um, been okay throughout their life without, uh, you know, any difficulties in their eating. And then they present, like, like you said, sort of premenopausal. Um, I think when I mentioned the risk factors, one of, one of the things that are really important is any kind of transition or loss or um, some sort of change that can uh, bring about anxiety. Because if you imagine when you're not eating, the, the effect that the starvation has on your brain is actually to numb some of those processes. Um, So people become more depressed, they actually become more anxious as a result of the starvation, Um, but it helps people manage some of the anxiety that might be there before, because it brings them into a cognitively sort of numb place um, Mm. as a result of starvation. And so some people will say, well, actually the eating disorder has helped me. So, you know, they're not giving their body enough nutrition the brain's response is to kind of shut down and, and numb down. Um, and so actually their anxiety might get better. Um, and so they feel that it has helped, that control has helped them to manage whatever transition might be going on. So it could be, you know, a loss of bereavement, a, a particular trauma or, uh, you know, a divorce, uh, menopause, retirement, it could be anything. Um, moving from primary to secondary school, bullying. Um, all of those things can um, be risk factors. Um, and they're called risk factors, so that none of them are causal. So you can't say that if, you know, if my parent had an eating disorder, I'm definitely going to get an eating disorder. Or if I have, if I'm a perfectionist, I'm definitely going to get eating disorder. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, they're risk factors. Okay. And then you mentioned the bariatric surgery 
And, and I wonder too, we heard about a rise in plastic surgery uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, there's lots of sort of weight loss type surgeries you can have that are plastic surgeries, liposuction, et cetera. Do you see that as well? Um, weight loss surgeries, but also, you know, um, because body dysmorphia um, is another uh, uh, important consideration in people who have eating disorders. So uh, they have a distortion in terms of their perception of, of maybe a particular body part. So that could be their stomach, but often it's something, you know, facial, maybe their nose or their lips or their eyes or, you know, something like that. Um, and so a lot of people will go ahead and do things like have plastic surgery um, because they have that distorted body image um, or that body dysmorphia. Um, and, and so again, you know, COVID-19 has, has meant that a lot of us are spending the majority of our time in front of the screen, um, observing ourselves um, and observing other people and what they look like in front of the screen. Um, I think social media has a huge part to play in this though. So it's not just COVID. I think, um, you know, uh, our sense of what reality is comes from uh, looking at images or that, that have been photoshopped, that are filtered. Um, so there's lots on TikTok at the moment. I think you, you, know, you may have seen um, people posting videos of um, a filtered image of themselves and then saying, this is not my face. I can't believe that I you know, perceive and look at other people based on this filter and, and what I think I look like and what I think other people look like, this is not my face. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's really important to, to think about the messages that come through all of the, those types of media in terms of, you know, Instagram, TikTok and, and, and things that actually we're basing our ideals on a distorted um, perception of what reality is. Now, what about orthorexia, which, if you can explain that a little bit? And I, you know, at Live Healthy, we cover the fitness world, and I have come across people, coaches, trainers who have disordered eating, but yet are in the public realm advising people on nutrition. And in the background, our fit is, can, they look amazing to you, but I would say I've bumped up against these people more often, like more than you would think. And, you know, they're in the yoga world and they're in the fitness world. Do you see this? And how does this, where, to what extent does this go? How big of a problem is this, do you think? Um, so there's lots of terms now, aren't there? So things like orthorexia, clean eating, uh, you know, what, what do any of these mean? Um, but I guess um, orthorexia is, uh, the, it's, it's a coin term that sort of um, describes having an unhealthy focus on eating in a healthy way. Um, and so that means that somebody is overcritical, um, they are quite rigid, they feel guilt and shame um, if they're not able to maintain certain diet standards. I wouldn't say healthy standards because they're usually diet or restrictive standards. Um, and then generally that um, affects your, your mental health and your, your well-being. Um, so that's orthorexia and it's this unhealthy focus, um, more like an obsessive preoccupation with healthy eating um, and like I said before so it's it's about well what is healthy so of course you know uh, I'm talking about this from one perspective but of course there is the perspective of um, you know obesity being a, a global issue um, and lots of public health campaigns and things trying to um, you know think about sugar intake and obes obesity so that, that of course that's important um, 
I guess I would just try and urge people to to really think about what is healthy um, and not that healthy is synonymous with restricting and dieting um, because all of those people, so they, you know, those people you mentioned that are health enthusiasts and, um, you know, yoga instructors and personal trainers, um, uh, if, if, they have, if they have a healthy lifestyle, what they're going to be doing is actually eating a lot more in terms of being able to manage their um, energy requirements. Um, and so they'll, you know, a lot of people have uh, kind of muscle gain weight um, sort of meal plans and um, things like, uh, you know, thinking about macros and protein and, and those types of things. So, um, so I think it's important to, to really think about actually where is the basis of where that knowledge is coming from. And we, we, see, we see lots of people. So we'll see, you know, doctors with eating disorders. We'll see pharmacists with eating disorders. Uh, you know, um, people in the health world, um, in the exercise sort of arena. Um, a lot of people will come to us who are professional swimmers or athletes, um, you know, ballet dancers, you know, things like that. And, um, and these are usually people that are in the spotlight. And so, of course, if body image is something that everybody experiences, um, of course, those people will have, if they're in the spotlight, are going to have maybe more issues in terms of their body image. Um, so, so really they, in, in some ways, need to sort of inform, um, uh, inform their own messages and, and think a little bit about how are they putting across the, the messages to, to an entire sort of group of people who also have similar body image issues, because that's something that we can't get away from. With the body uh, positivity, the body acceptance movement, there's all sorts of terms for it that's been really big on social media. Is that having any impact, do you think, on people who are suffering from eating disorders? This massive, you know, Danae Mercer, who, who's written for us and lived in Dubai, she's moved to Italy now, but she, you know, over a, m a million followers and sort of her, her recovery and showing her body parts. And, you know, just like, I know she's helped me. Like, has that, is that having any impact in the work that you do? I think so. And we use a lot of those things. So, you know, Dove had done an amazing campaign in terms of body um, positivity. Um, and we use those things in our treatment uh, to kind of think a little bit about, you know, um, self-esteem and how, how do people actually accept their bodies? Uh, what is the reality of what people are, um, are seeing? So um, eating disorders, you know, part and parcel of that is that there is a distorted body image. And so being able to help someone to get to what is more of a realistic um, uh, experience of, of their body image is, is really important. So often I'll, I'll, I'll sit with very young children, uh, you know, ask them to draw an outline of what they think their, their body looks like. Um, and, you know, because our sense of what our body looks like is from what we see on shop you know, shop windows or mirrors um, and, and, and pictures. And, you know, if I'm taking a picture from here, it's going to be very different from if I'm taking a picture head on. Um, so there are all those perception things. Um, and, and then I ask them to actually try and have a feel of their body um, and really take notice of, of, of what their body feels like and then redraw the picture. And often what you see is that there's a huge difference between what their perception is and what they can actually feel and what the reality is. Um, so I think, you know, th th those things are really important. I've, I've lost track in terms of your question. <laughs> um, but I think um, 
I think body yeah body positivity and, and awareness is really important because we we all have you know and now they have so many models and things that are more full, full bodied and, and more representative mm-hmm. of actually what normal is um you know because we're, we're all of you know such different shapes and sizes and and, and that's great yeah. uh, you know we should be embracing that uh so what do parents need to be on the lookout for with their kids would you say um so i would say that in terms of um just thinking a little bit about i would, I would go a step backwards first and, and that would be is uh, what kind of conversations happen in the family? Um, so, you know, around the dinner table, around food and weight, is is there a, a sort of a family preoccupation with conversations about weight and food? Um, because often that can, can be something that maybe maintains difficulties that a young person is having. So if I give you um, sort of um, an example that there may be sort of families that are very much into clean eating, um, and so they may, there, there might be a, a young person who's really struggling. Um, and as well as giving that young person a message that actually you shouldn't be skipping your meals, you need to be eating, you're not eating enough, you're losing weight. Um, parents between themselves are talking about, oh, did you read that article? And did you see that person and what they were saying about, um, uh, you know, sugar intake or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so actually those mixed messages aren't helpful. Um, and so they do maintain some of the, the difficulties, but I, I would never say that parents are ever to blame in any way. I think that's a term, you know, something yeah. that people think and also um, an anxiety that parents have that they're to blame. Parents are the biggest uh, resource in terms of um, supporting and treating the child. Um, and so that's really important. Um, and I would also say that, you know, one of the, um, one of the really important things um, is thinking a little bit about what messages are coming through school and public health messages. So I remember when I was in the UK, uh, they, um, they had the Change for, for Life uh, UK campaign, which was addressing um, uh, young children and their snacking. And so suggesting it was a whole public health campaign suggesting that children should only have under 100 calorie snacks two times a day and no more. Um, So you're giving this message through schools and through public health um, forums um, to very young children who are impressionable, maybe have body image issues, um, that actually they should only be having less than 100 calorie snacks. Um, And so we had eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds coming to us who had developed eating disorders um, after hearing talks in school, um, being really fixated on calories all of a sudden, when that never had been an issue before. Uh, so it's really important to just be generally aware, what are those public health school messages? Um, and, and, you know, thankfully, you know, schools are very much on the ball with this. So they, they do filter a lot of these things out um, and they do talk a lot about mental health and body positivity and um, acceptance. Okay. Um, okay, what about on, uh, in the Emirati community? Because I, you know, you kind of think maybe it hasn't reached there, but I, I think I've seen some stats that it has. Uh, yeah, and you know, like I said, it doesn't discriminate. So we we see um, lots of people from the Emirati culture um, who come to see us in outpatients. Um, often they may come later, 
you know, that's not general uh, generalized, but often they may come come later in terms of the, the illness, and that's because they've been struggling for for a long time. Um, and that might be something to do with either family communication or maybe, you know, the stigma of mental health and seeking support. And, you know, what does that mean for the future? What does that mean if people find out, if the school finds out, you know, all of those anxieties that any parent has. Um, and, and, it, and it's that lack of understanding, actually, if you think about the sort of older generation, not just Emirati, any culture, um, that they don't understand uh, eating disorders as a mental health illness. Um, and so that's happening more recently in terms of the awareness. But actually, a lot of these uh, children will have had lots of messages from their parents, well, just eat more, why can't you eat more? Um, and if you think about cultures and different religions and different uh, places that people come from in terms of diversity, there may be lots of things like famine and starvation and things like that in, in their family histories. Um, so actually it's inconceivable that your child won't eat because yeah. we have food and we have access to food. Um, so, you know, there's so much a play when, uh, when people come to, to see us um, in terms of families and cultures. Um, and it's important to take that into consideration, but we, d we definitely see lots of um, Emirati patients of okay. all ages. So as we're in Eating Disorders Awareness Week, can you, can you offer us some hope from people you've treated? Because, you know, often when you hear about the story, it just seems like such a difficult problem for people to cope and move through and heal from. Can you just, yeah, can you offer us some hope, some, what, what can people look forward to if, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me put it into context. So the research shows that without treatment, uh, eating disorders usually last for about six years. Um, with treatment, so if you come for treatment and you uh, notice uh, the, the symptoms and signs early and you get specialist support, um, we often anecdotally see patients who come into the service and sort of between six months and a year um, are in a place of recovery. So that's really important. So that early intervention is, is really important. Um, there's been lots of cases, you know, particularly in the very young children. So we see a lot of cases of avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID. Is that something that um, maybe I can explain a little bit more? So it's seen in younger children. Um, it's usually when they're not able to meet their nutritional and energy needs. Um, either because of avoidance of food or restriction of food, and that can be for a variety of reasons. Uh, so worries about adverse consequences, like maybe a fear of vomiting or worries about choking. Uh, maybe they have um, sensitivities to texture of food, so that might be seen in autistic children commonly. Um, and, and so what that means is that the young person, it's usually younger children, so, you know, age five, five to ten, um, they usually come in with a lot of significant weight loss um, and um, parents will kind of say, oh, he's always been a fussy eater. You know, he's always been picky with his food. He only eats nuggets and chips or, you know, uh, whatever that might be. Um, and because of the awareness of things like that, we're actually seeing a lot of patients come in, um, parents bringing young people in. In the past, they probably wouldn't have. They probably would have said he'll grow out of it. It's just fussy eating. And it's because of the awareness of that, that so there's been things in the media that have shown, you know, there was a young boy who was a uh, similar picture, only eating nuggets and, and, and a few um, different types of food. 
um, ended up with a vitamin A deficiency, which eventually went to blindness. Um, so when you're seeing that kind of thing, uh, as a parent, you're probably more likely to, to bring a child in. And so those children do really well and you know they can do really well quite quickly with support. Um, a lot of it's to do with parent training because um, uh, the children are usually quite young, um, but with support from a sort of multidisciplinary team, uh, I've seen lots of those types of patients do really well, increase their variety of food, do really well nutritionally. Um, I've seen very young children, sort of eight-year-olds coming in with um, developing anorexia. Often they don't understand it themselves. So it's not that they have insight into it or they understand how they developed it. It might be that they um, just wanted to eat healthy and then the brain changes meant it developed into an anorexia, um, but it's not a conscious, you know, it's not that they consciously uh, were trying to, to lose weight. Um, and, and so those patients, again, you know, younger patients do really, really well um, with a bit of support um, and tend to, to recover really quickly. And of course, then you've got, you know, um, the patients that will see that, um, that it takes time to recover, but then they recover fully um, after a year or two. Um, some, some patients will go on to kind of uh, recover and then maybe have some issues in the future. Uh, and then we, of course, see, see those who um, develop more of a chronic anorexia or uh, bulimia or binge eating disorder. And how do you get through doing this kind of work? Because it must be terribly difficult for you. What drew you to it and what, what gets you through? Um, that's a really interesting question. I, uh, it was something, I, I think it was um, a lot to do with um, just being in certain situations and, uh, you know, throughout my training and then what was interesting me. Um, I think mostly I've always, um, you know, I, I love food. I, you know, I'm passionate about um, sort of uh, food being an integral part of people coming together uh, different cultures, you know, celebrations, Eid, weddings, Christmas, you know, all of those things, um, that it really does bring people together. Uh, so maybe those those things, um, the, the, the cultural aspects of, of food and eating, that really interests me. Um, and then in terms of getting through it, I think uh, I always think about um, being a role model in some, in some ways of, you know, what am I doing? What are my practices? Um, and how am I uh, what am I showing my patients? Um, so similarly, I would say that's the case for parents as well. So, you know, when parents are at home with COVID and they're doing um, working from home, do they actually prioritize taking breaks and having lunch? Are the, are the families eating, you know, together at, at the dinner table? Um, and if you're not doing those things and you're not prioritizing taking a break and having lunch, um, but then, you know, there's a young person in the family who's also skipping, meals, um, then of course we need to kind of think about what, what's our behavior and, and how are we um, making food and, and eating and our general physical but mental health a priority because food plays such a big part in our mental health um, and, and so it's important. Okay, listen, thank you, Dr. Nanji. I appreciate it so much. Good luck with all the stuff you're gonna be doing during the week, appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time.
on the Live Healthy Podcast.